Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you very much for coming to our event, Shattering China's Energy Dominance in African Minerals. I'd like to introduce our two speakers, Thierry Tano and François Baird. We're honored to have them both with us, and I want to welcome not only you, but also our online audience. And we're going to be taking questions not only from you afterwards, but also from our online audience who can put questions in the chat. How many of you believe that we are going to have all electric vehicles by 2035? <laughs> Jim, great. Anybody else? How many people believe we're going to have half of our vehicles be battery electric by 2035? That's, uh, yeah, more enthusiasm there. Well, in order to have all these batteries, <laughs> well, in order to have all these electric vehicles, they're all going to take batteries. And the battery weight varies from 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. Well, as recently as 1990, America was the world's number one producer of minerals. And today, the United States is in seventh place. Even though the US has vast mineral reserves worth trillions of dollars, we are now 100% dependent on imports for some 17 key minerals. And China is a significant source for half of these 29 minerals that we need. Many of us don't know that a single electric car battery weighing 1,000 pounds requires extracting and processing some 500,000 pounds of materials. Averaged over a battery's life, each mile of driving an electric car consumes five pounds of earth. So if we're going to move towards these electric vehicles with their batteries, we are somehow going to have to get the minerals that we need so that we're not dependent on China for these minerals and for this very important component. So hence our talk today. We have two specialists from Africa, Thierry Tano and Francois Baird, who are going to explain to us how the United States can make more progress in getting some of the minerals that we're going to need for our electric batteries. I'm going to introduce both our speakers. We're going to start with Thierry Tano and then go on to Francois Baird. Thierry Tano has over 32 years of financial investments in debt, sub-debt, and equity, banking, senior government, and consulting experience worldwide. Most recently, he was the Minister of Oil energy and renewable energy in Côte d'Ivoire. In this capacity, he restructured the petroleum sector, including the restructuring of the debt of the National Refinery Company for $600 million. He relaunched exploration activities in the Ivorian sedimentary basin, attracting all key major oil firms. And Thierry restructured the electricity sector by raising with a World Bank partial guarantee, more than 300 million, and restoring positive margins in electricity production so that Cote d'Ivoire no longer has blackouts. It looks like California could learn from Cote d'Ivoire. <laughs> Francois Baird is an American citizen who was born in South Africa, grew up on a farm in its Northwest province, started his career in the gold mines, attained a degree in international politics and political science at the University of Pretoria, and served as a commissioned officer in the South African Air Force. 
He's the founder and chairman of Baird's CMC Limited, Baird's US LLC, and Calbridge Investments. Baird's CMC is an international communication management consultancy with 47 partners across the world. He's co-chairman, Africa, of Taylor Advisories, the boutique M&A firm headquartered in Washington, DC. And he's also the founder of the Fair Play anti-dumping trade movement. So with that, let's listen to Thierry Tano. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Diana. And um, it's a great honor for me to be here today and giving me the opportunity, I think, to speak uh, to such a great audience. So what I'm going to try to do very briefly, I've got about 10 minutes. 12 minutes, I said to Diana this morning. Yes, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, 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 I'm going to try to do it brief because I just want to introduce the subject and make sure that we put things in context. And I tend to be a visual person, so what you're going to see is basically us to do with the, the visual. So, technology challenge. Thank you very much. So, this is the perspective. This is, <clears throat> I'm sure some people have seen this already, but this is a map of the world uh, at scale. And this, this is a map of, this, of the world you know, you know, with the, in relation to GDP in 2018. And for those who don't realize, this is the African continent uh, in the middle there. So then um, this is people living in absolute poverty in the world. Then this is the lack of mandatory but primary educations in the world. The big continent you're seeing is Africa, and the one you're not seeing is basically Europe and the US and Latin America. Then the lack of secondary education is also in the world. Then the lack of access to electricity. Uh, and I'd like you to focus on this one also, because this is the projected population in the world by 2100. So basically, what we're saying here is that Africa's basic needs as of today, they're not very much satisfied. Um, healthcare, education, among others. And by 2050, yet by 2050, this continent will be the youngest in terms of population in the world. And by 2100, it will be the continent with the largest population, which means that African leaders are and will continue to be under tremendous pressure, I think, to support the needs of their populations. Yet, Africa is a rich continent. If you look at uh, uh, the bauxite productions, for example, you're saying that you know, some of the largest producers are coming from Africa. If you look at the cobalt, also with DRC, among others. Uh, if you look at uh, the manganese, also. And these are products that are all, of course, included or needed in some of the components for electric cars, among others. And if you look also at the the copper. Here you have two things. You have the production of copper, and then you have the um, the uh, the, uh, the smelting one, the one that's been gone through smelters. And if you look at, the, you realize that in uh, China is by definition the one where all the copper is being uh, transformed, and not only coming from Africa, but coming from a lot of part of the rest of the world. Uh, so um, this is this is a a view that is important to take into account, because Africa is not the only place where China is bringing its raw material. So what does Africa need? Uh, Africa needs to put more value in, in the product that it's, and it's in its raw material. Um, this is something that is more than needed in a continent where we're having so much uh, raw materials. Um, we also uh, need uh, to be able to provide private capital in the long terms, and for that we need partners that will provide us with long-term capital. There is, if you look at the demand on the continent, and if you look at the project growth of population, just the demographic, it's very clear that public sector money will not be sufficient to supply the needs of the more and more demanding population on the continent. As a result, the impact and the role of the private sector is going to be critical um, in, in the years to come. 
Um, and for that, I think we would need to have, this continent needs to have a better management and better macroeconomic management and its governance, uh, which means you, you, you want to attract FDIs, and to attract FDIs, you need to have the business environment, which is an attractive one. Uh, and by attractive one, it doesn't mean that, you know, people should come and only make money. It, it means that, you know, we have to, have to be in a win-win situation in Africa where we're welcoming the private sector for long-term investment. The private sector should be rewarded, but the people from the continent needs to be able to see the benefit uh, of such uh, private sector operations on the continent. So who, who trades with Africa? If you look at, at this uh, at this presentations, you're saying that you know EU is a is a major trade uh, for Africa. Inter uh, intra African trade is 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 growing, but not enough. But we were very happy with the initiative of the free trade zones in Africa. It has to be bigger. If you look at um, trades within Europe, I think it's about 80 85 percent of the trades. Uh, we're well below, and this is something where there's potential growth for the continent. Well, and, and I, I think you need to put, because the conversation is also going to be around this, so here on this chart, I'm putting trades uh, in three main areas, EU, China, and the US. And if you look at this, you realize that you know after the subprime crisis in 2008, the trade uh, with, uh, with the US has been lagging compared to even uh, uh, EU and, and certainly China was, was picked up on the trend on, on this one. And if you look at the FDI in Africa, you know, we, we're like 38, 39 billion dollars compared to the overall world trade. We, we are very, very small today. Um, I bet I won't be here to see this, but if you're looking into such a same chart by 2050, 2075, there's going to be a huge difference in the numbers, in my view. Now, uh, if you look again, Chinese uh, vs. Uh, US FDI to uh, Africa, same trends. Uh, we're, we're saying that after a certain period of time, uh, Chinese picked up and the US FDI in, in, in Africa went down. These are, you know, 49% more or less of the FDIs of China into into uh, Africa are done with a few countries, South Africa, DRC, Angola, Zambia, Ethiopia, and Ghana. And you realize that most of these ones are indeed uh, rich uh, minerals or oil producer. Now, if you look at the African debt, it is so clear that uh, 22 countries in, in Africa uh, are in a level high risk today, uh, debt distress. Um, the level of the debt in Africa today is about $644 billion. Uh, uh, and it, it went up, and I'll show you after. Um, overall, though, if you look at the uh, debt level of debt to GDP on the overall continent, is 24%, uh, which is a numbers that most of EU or US would envy to have today, to be very honest. Um, yet, if you look at the trajectory of uh, the debt, you know, the debt relief came uh, in the early 2000, 2010 for most of uh, the countries. You, st you look at the way the debt has picked up, and it, it, it's, it's going into an impressive growth uh, following the, the debt relief initiative. Some countries are much more aggressively affected by this and you know these this shows among others uh, you know country like Angola also has, has been growing that has been growing very very fast now um, I think this thing this chart I'd like you to pay attention to this one because I, I think it's it's also shows clearly uh, the strategy that you're seeing and the difference in strategy you're seeing between the US and and China when it comes to uh, investing in Africa and in the African debt. If you take out the bondholders, which is the private sectors, and probably some of these bondholders, to, to be honest, a lot of them probably comes from South Africa, uh, certainly. Um, but most of, uh, if you take this aside, you're saying that uh, uh, China tends to be present very strongly. And in the, 
in the, the bilateral uh, and the concessional China is really taking a, a big chunk of it. Why? It's because you know, probably the strategy of China is to go along with uh, some of its state-owned companies, some of its private sector companies, and you know, support them um, with, with, with some financing. And remember that today, if you, look at, if you have to implement a project and you look at where the value added is for a project, um, it's whether it's generally in the design and the financing uh, structuring, but when you turns when it comes to constructions, this is there's no we're not building in Africa things that are rocket science. So the value is not there, and then the value comes in operating these facilities. And if you look at China's strategy recently, it has been moved from a sole investor to an investor that was also building, but also operating. So you'll see more and more China interesting in operating uh, their investments in the region. This is the level of debt. So you know you can see this is debt service, which is increasing. Um, and uh, one aspect I'd like you to look into is because of the needs uh, of Africa when it comes to social, well, social, which is the education and healthcare, you're starting to realize the impact that the debt has uh, on on uh, on the social uh, infrastructure, social spending, which to me is 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 an aspect that one need to look into. Um, for some countries, uh, the the debt uh, level in this chart is way above the, the expenditure in healthcare and in education, which which is not a good sign for for the future. Some others, uh, this is the one you would like to see. So this is the bottom line. This is I took the example of Botswana. This is the level of debt at the bottom, and then you're looking at uh, raising expenditures uh, on, on, on the key sectors. And you know I think the educations, I would like, like to see it at the same, same path as the debt, but uh, obviously. But, but this is a good example, for example, uh, of uh, you know, well management, good management. Now, uh, just to summarize, um, if I looked at when I when I when I made this I looked at the data on these presentations, I really went through different elements of it. And what I've seen and that I've I've I've, I've uh, experienced through my uh, four years working with the government of Cote d'Ivoire has been also that you know China has a very clear strategy when it comes to Africa. It's very clear, and it it, it implements its strategy by both public and private sector working together. Now, the U.S., uh, to, to me at least, uh, has yet to have a, a very long-term strategy in Africa, a clear one that is defined. But I think that if it has to do this to succeed, I think the U.S. government will have to very much come strategically support the expansion of its private sector in, in Africa. There is no question in my mind that the private sectors would have to play a key role in Africa in the years to come in order to be able to respond to the needs of the populations and, and the African people. Thank you very much. Okay, now we're going to hear from Francois Ben. Good morning. And uh, Diana, thank you for the generous introduction. I'm quite excited that Africa is on the agenda again. Uh, this morning, I said to my wife, darling, did you think in your wildest dreams I would be uh, on a panel about Africa at the Heritage Foundation? And uh, her answer surprised me. She said, darling, you're never in my wildest dreams. <laughs> so, so nonetheless, I have to say, I feel a bit like Africa. You know, Africa is only in someone's wildest dreams <laughs> from time to time. Uh, and that's because I think Africa has seen the kind of uh, uh, development where it is contested ground. Let me, Jerry, oh, there's the big button. It's contested ground. Not necessarily contested ground only because of strife in Africa. That's less and less the fact. After all, uh, free trade is now, an African free trade zone is now a reality. It is because uh, we, in, in a sense, 
Cold War II. And the question in Africans' minds is, are we going to be the battlefield? And if so, what do we do about it? We cannot have a situation where an African map is a map of contest when the Africans themselves have not yet developed their own continent. So the question in their minds is then, how do we make the most of Chinese-American contests in Africa? And there are two models, it seems, and Thierry referred to it as well. In essence, if you look at the control of the private sector in China, it's a state-to-state -state model in Africa. The Chinese government decides where they're going to compete, what they're going to do, and business do as they're told, but they also get the support to do so. If you look at the US, it's business-to-state. The private sector needs to expand. Terry is absolutely right. But to, to expand, they have to find a way that satisfies private sector criteria. And if we then look at, uh, at the share of sub in, in sub-Saharan Africa of China's imports, you will see that they dominate trade with Africa. They've had a long and distinguished record, in fact, in Africa of in developing a clear strategy, just as Terry said. And that clear strategy is that China not only takes the long view, but acts over time systematically to build up their share. So if you look at, uh, at how they do that, they don't only do it by government-to-government -government relations. They also do it by getting companies involved and taking their people there. They give it, they do it by providing money. Gary outlined debt in Africa. I recently spoke to a, a, a guy who's providing services to the mining industry in uh, the DRC. Thermo Fisher was the company he worked for. And I said to him, how are things on the ground? How do you experience it on the ground? And he said, well, you know, we're, uh, we have Chinese customers and we have mostly South African mining customers. He said, the South African mines are run like uh, South African mines. They like to employ locals. They bring some, some management in. The management doesn't want to settle in the Congo. They want to go back home. So as far as they're concerned, the quicker they can get Congolese to take over, the better. Americans follow the same model. You see the same thing. I said, and what about the Chinese? And he said, well, it's a closed system. When I go to a Chinese mine, they pick me up at the airport. I travel in a convoy. They take me into the mine, and I don't leave till the job is done, and I only see Chinese. The anecdotal and the statistical align. The growth in trade is very strategic for China. They are really uh, ballooning their involvement over uh, compared to the US. That's a simple fact. China is far bigger than the US and therefore more important. And they do it very uh, strategically. Their state-led model says we invest in places where we are going to have a long-term interest. And that's what they do. But they don't only look at, uh, at minerals, which is what people often think when they talk mining and, and strategic minerals. They also look at strategic natural resources, other resources, uh, oil, gas, and timber. In Mozambique, you'd be surprised to see how much indigenous timber is being hauled away on a daily basis by China. No one talks anymore about how uh, territorial waters in Africa are being fished out by Chinese interests.
uh, it's very, very difficult to think of China and Africa in general terms. I think one of the things that should happen is that the U.S. should start thinking of Africa in terms of African countries, not only in terms of the continent. By the way, the proof that both Thierry and I are Africans is that we start a, a talk with an African map. Because the most difficult thing to explain to people is that Africa is not a country. <laughs> so we have learned over time, start with an African map, show the countries. A couple of years ago, though, uh, our company collaborated with the Chamber of Commerce, and we did some research with American companies, Fortune 500 companies and Fortune 1000 companies, personal interviews with CEOs and CFOs. And the question was simple. What would it take for you to invest in Africa? The answer was not unsurprising. The answer was, well, you know, behind closed doors we ask ourselves, if we take the government to court, can we win? So rule of law is quite important. And they said, we cannot sell our products on a retail scale or at any scale if we deal with a poor, unhealthy population. So health is important. And we need consumers with money in their pockets. So we need jobs. And we don't invest unless we know that it's uh, a safe thing for us to do and we can look our shareholders in the eye. And so conditions have to be right for us. A Chinese company doesn't have that problem. So many people fixate on the idea that somehow uh, the legislation that forces uh, a measure of uh, openness and, uh, and uh, rule of law on American companies is a bad thing, right? Uh, sending people to jail because they bribe in Africa it shouldn't happen because the Chinese do it. Well, I don't think that's really the issue. I think the issue is that corruption should be rooted out, and if no one can benefit by corruption, it will disappear as, a, as, a, as an advantage to any country, never mind Chinese countries. And at the bottom of this all, American companies want a stable environment. And this is particularly important when you talk about mining. When I started my career underground at the age of 16, working for, for a gold mine in South Africa, uh, it, was quite, uh, it was quite interesting uh, for me to learn that there are whole cities underground when you talk deep level mining. Now, imagine the capital investment that's required. Of course, a mining engineer made it all simple for me. He said, it's not that big a deal. It's just a hole in the ground. Well, mining is a hole in the ground, but it has implications. You can't take back your hole and export it to a different country and go and set up there again. Once you dig a hole <laughs> and you've invested the capital, you need to get a return. And if you have a coup, uh, as happened six times in Africa over the last couple of years, two years, uh, that hole is not going anywhere, but you are. And so it's very important for us to ensure that when we want American investment in Africa, the environment is stable. So what's the sweet spot? Thierry referred to an exceptionally important item, energy access. The estimates for energy access in Africa is between 600 and 770 million people who don't have access to energy. That is an enormous number. More people lack access to energy in Africa than there are people in the United States. Think about that. Because if you don't have access to energy, you don't have food security. Now, the, uh, the rock stars, they, they brought to bear the whole world's attention on, uh, on famine in Africa. I'm not sure it helped. But you can't, at industrial scale, do food production 
if you don't have energy. It's that simple. You can't distribute it either. So it's very important to get food security in Africa by having energy security. Both of those, including mining, depend on stability. And stability depends on the rule of law. So if we then going to talk about the rule of law and say, where should the US invest? My contention is that it should take note of this map. Fragile states. Look at the concentration of fragile states. Why would that be a stable environment for mining, where you can go and dig holes and hope you get your capital back with a bit of a return? Unless the US can help solve that problem, it's not going to win in competition, in mining, even agriculture, anything that depends on the permanency of the land. So what should it do? I think what it should do, and this is just my view, is to focus on building relationships through which it can help to establish stability by investing in the empowerment of local capacity in Africa for rule of law. Africans have a stake in having freedom, having an honest society, and having a safe environment in which to invest. Their own money is at stake as well. And when things go wrong, they lose much more than the US or China because they live there. So the US should do everything it can to strengthen the courts in Africa, judicial independence, a free press. Democracy is a sort of thing that's shown, that's, that's kicked around by many people, and they all mean different things. I think stability in the continent is what it all should lead to. And stability is not having a good dictator who's on our side. Stability means that there are no dictators in Africa and that the people select the government, and we may not like them, but that the government will be kicked out again and the courts will defend the interests of people who invest in that country. That's where we need to get to if we want to do <laughs> investment in strategic minerals in Africa. Because without that, there's no guarantee. And in the long term, this is the choice. From a business perspective, uh, I think sometimes American businesses want to be mambas. They want to quickly move in for the kill and, uh, and absorb the kill. Whereas there's a different style, which is the python, that will slowly strangle it, the dragon. The crocodile will be strangled and eaten over time. So if you have to make a choice to encourage anyone to say, how do you challenge an opponent in Africa, be a python, don't be a mamba. Diana, I'm happy to uh, hand over to you. Thank you. Well, thanks very much to both of you. I'm going to ask one question, then we're going to open it up to questions from our audience here and our online audience. Uh, and people watching online can put questions in the chat, and then they will be relayed to this uh, little machine here. Let me ask uh, both of you, uh, is there, what can the United States do right now? Francois, you talked about establishing stability, the rule of law. Isn't that going to take decades? Uh, does this mean that until stability and the rule of law are established, the United States has to cede control over Africa's minerals to the Chinese. I wondered what both of you thought about this. Would you like to go first, or would you like me? I'll go first. I'll start with another chart that Thierry showed us. Africa is a continent where the grandfathers rule the grandchildren. So many of the intransigent, authoritative leaders in Africa are quite old. 
the good Lord will solve that problem in time. What the U.S. has to do to help is to ensure that the new generation have the means to take the issues on. If the U.S. can only support young Africans to not only get involved in politics, but get involved in creating stability in their countries, they are willing to do it. I know because I work with many of them uh, on, through many platforms. But an investment in educating and empowering the youth in Africa to, to go for rule of law, and when they do, to support them. That's vital. And it can work in the short term. If you look at the country where I was born, in South Africa, it's really going through a tough time, thanks to its leaders. But if you look at civil society, people are providing answers themselves, and they're doing what it takes to fix the problems themselves. And I'd be very interested in the outcome, not only of uh, Saturday's Nigerian election, but the South African election next year. Many people think it's a long-term problem. I think that it's a long-term solution that starts now. Thank you. Thierry? Yeah, so yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the, um, I've had the luck, I think, to work with the U.S. on the MCC program when it was implemented in, in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, and I'm part of the people who designed it, to be very honest. And I, I really like the approach of, of, the, uh, of the MCC and what high looking even in terms of... Can you tell us what MCC is? Because some people the Millennium Challenge, Millennium yeah. Challenge Corporations. In, in the way it looked at how it's going to provide grants to uh, uh, companies and, and the private sectors in, in these countries. Um, one of them is the environment, and the, the uh, some indicators are there, and governance is one of them. The corruption indicator is one of them. But where, where to meet? One thing I'm clear about is that if you look at where Africa is today and what it needs to be by the by the end of this century and in the years to come, there is no way that public resources in Africa would be able, I think, to provide what the population needs. And therefore, the private sector is going to be key. Now, who is the country on this planet that has the most brilliant private sector? This is the US, clearly. Right? So why is it that they've been able to do it here and they cannot support this to be implemented in Africa? You have indeed to have, a, it's a long-term solution, but it, it, it implies a long-term strategy. And one of the first things to do is to be very honest, you know, you have to lead by example. Support the countries that are doing the right things, but you, then, then you support them massively. Which are those countries now? I, I mean, the problem is in an audience like this one, picking up a country for someone in my position becomes very difficult exercise. Well, yeah. I'm sure could you are. But, yeah, but for example, you, you're looking at countries where when you implement or you're providing resources, they are being used in the way they're supposed to be used to benefit not only to the private sector, but also to the local populations. You know, one thing you have to understand is doing business for an American company in Africa, the way it does business here will never work because the culture is different. So therefore, you have to use local resources. You need to bring, you know how many Africans are living in these countries? You know, a lot that have been educated under the US system that speak English, speak their language of their countries, using them even to invest in, in the continent. We made a huge difference. How many companies have you seen that says, our strategy is to be in Africa, and then you look at their board. There's not a single person in the board of directors that understand or have even set foot in Africa. So you put your money where your mouth is. If you think this is a strategically interesting continent for you, and I think it is, then you need to strategically put your assets so that you implement your strategy. Clearly, if you're not present today, and you look at the others, the way they're aggressively going into Africa, you'll miss, you'll miss the boat. Questions? Uh, over here. 
Why don't you stand up, identify yourself, and ask a question rather than a comment. Hello, I'm Emma Ernst. I was wondering if either of you are optimistic for the State Department's Mineral Security Partnership, which has been engaging with some African countries to discuss sustainable principles for mining, but also foreign direct investment in Africa. Can you repeat your question? I want to make sure I heard it correctly, yeah? Are you optimistic for the State Department's so-called mineral security partnership? And can you tell us a bit about what that is? Sure. So it was announced by, I think, the Under Secretary of Energy and Environment, Jose Fernandez, and he's been meeting with various countries, but recently at the uh, mining in Daba in South Africa. He engaged with several African countries and they're expected to announce projects that they're supporting, um, but they're supporting sustainable mining um, in Africa. And just wondering if you had any thoughts on that as part of the US strategy. I'm not sure if either of you have even heard of the program, but if you have, please. Uh, would you like me to go ahead? From what I heard back, uh, conversations behind closed doors, which I'm outing now, I suppose, but I won't mention names. But there are concerns in Africa to say the US, the US seems only to be interested in US domestic concerns and trying to force their own domestic concerns on us. Because that's not the place where we want to start. Uh, Mines need power. Uh, we like mines to be clean and to be well run and to, and to make enough money available to recover any damage they've done to the environment. But energy access to everyone is much more important to us now. And baseload for mines and jobs are much more important to us now. And it seems the US have a turn here when it comes to our interests. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe the comments are wrong. But it's it's a fairly common uh, comment I've heard following the mining attack. Without naming names. Okay. If I may just add, and, and I think we both said it, you know, whatever you're going to do in Africa, it has to be a win-win. And some people think, you know, when I look, when I presented the slides and I look at, I presented the, the continent in, by 2100, people think the battle is between China, uh, the US or EU, you're wrong. We are going to consume our own raw materials because we need it. And we will need it and we'll try to make sure that we're getting it for us before the others. So the things that we have to look into is what will be a long-term win-win situation for everybody. Okay? But clearly, if you look at this map, the demand for African, from African is going to be huge. And therefore, they, will, they, they won't be able to just stand there looking at their raw material coming, going out. Well, they need it for their own purpose. So we need to look into this in a global terms. Then I agree also that whatever you're going to do is, and I've said it, you cannot just transpose the way you do business here and think you're going to do the same business in Africa. It's very different culturally and in a lot of aspects. You need to integrate this and making sure that whatever you're going to do would be conducive to a situation that the US wins, the world wins, Africa wins. Well, thank you. Uh, let's take a question from our online audience. And again, I want to thank you all of you for tuning in and listening. Uh, here's the question. When you state that, quote, the territorial waters of Africa are being fished by the Chinese, unquote, does this mean that they are not abiding by the UN law of the sea and territorial contiguous and EEZ zones? Are the Chinese violating international law as it pertains to within 12 miles of territorial boundary and beyond? How is this in turn affecting the continent, which already faces drastic scarcity issues? And also, do you think that the Chinese are breaking other laws in their operations in Africa? So I, I, let me start. Okay. With 
Look, if you look at what I've presented and we have presented, both of us, um, Africa is, is a tiny part of what Chinese and Chinese are doing around the world. Okay, so why is it that we're only focusing on what is happening in Africa? If something is happening in Africa and it's not happening somewhere else, one of the reasons is because perhaps we as Africans, we have an, an ability, I think, to make things right to a certain extent, or we don't have the financial resources to do this. But before looking at others, I would look at myself and say, okay, am I doing the right thing here? Do I allow people to do things in my region, in my country, that they're not supposed to do? If this is the case, then whether it's any country, the problem is not the other country, it's me. So when we look at what any country does in Africa, we need to look at whether or not they're doing it in other places of the world, where they also do business. And this is where I think the source of the problem, and the, the end of this, the, the conclusion of that is, the solution is not perhaps the others, it's where it's coming from, from us. So clearly that requires also, you know, infrastructure that requires resources. I think we need to be able to, uh, you know, security across our borders, maritime security and everything. We'll need, but this is for us and we need to fix it. Well, there's no doubt that African waters are being fished out. And there are many examples. So I'm, I'm not going to do the, uh, the Google search for you. I think you can do it yourself. The issue is, as Thierry said, where is the African capacity to police their waters? And where are the African navies to protect their waters? Why is South Africa doing a naval exercise with China and Russia instead of Europe or the US? Don't blame South Africa only. Don't blame China only. Take responsibility. When uh, on the East Coast uh, pirates became a problem, it got solved when the US got involved. The idea that the US can withdraw from the world and control the world is mutually incompatible. So the US has to strengthen the maritime capacity, which is linked to food security. That's part of the problem. Uh, and to protect the interests of the US and the world, uh, they have to protect the interests of Africa as well and work with the Africans. So why can't we see more naval capacity being built in Africa? Why can't we see more patrol ships and Coast Guard get involved in training Africa African countries with a long border. Africa has, an, has several oceans abutting it. And remember, too, that Africa is the springboard for the Antarctic, another highly contested area when it comes to potential for, for, for minerals in the future. If the US doesn't solve this problem, the problem will be solved for it, and the US won't like it. Thank you. We have a question uh, over here, and then afterwards, you could just identify yourself and have a brief question, please, no comment. Hello, uh, my name is Matthew Teasdale. Uh, my question is, Could I you think, speak a bit louder? Uh, my name is Matthew Teasdale, and my question is, concerning some of the comments you made, you spoke about how in the future Africa is going to have to make deals in its own interest, also that energy security is going to be needed for development. How exactly uh, does really, you know, the economic decoupling after the war in Ukraine, the technology competition between U.S. and China going to impact Africa's development in the future? Go ahead. Go ahead. Look, I think this country has demonstrated that competition is very important because this is where you're gaining efficiency and productivity gain, okay? so that there's competition, I think this is the right thing. Again, is when you look at Africa and when you look at, at the world, generally speaking, either you look at as it is tomorrow, and you know, unfortunately sometimes you know, the stock market has, a, has almost like a daily view on things, 
uh, most of the CEOs and where companies are listed, when they wake up in the morning, the first thing they look at is, you know, how much their share is trading. Because if they're not trading high or if the tendency is going down, then you know that you're going to be replaced. Here, you're facing a situation where you, you talk about China and the U.S., they're not the only one. I mean, EU, the European Union, has also a need for this. And sometimes people don't even talk about Russia. Russia also is a major player in Africa. So the question to me is not how competition uh, uh, is going to impact, is how much of this competition is going to speed up you know, the development on the continent and the availability of, for this continent, I think, to explore and exploit uh, its material and its huge capacity to the benefit of the continent and also the rest of the world. I mean, there's a lot of unused capacity or potentials in Africa that could help Africa, but also the rest of the world. And this is the way I personally uh, look at it. If you look at, uh, if you look at Africa, uh, competition will succeed in Africa when there's rule of law, because then everyone is on the same level playing field. When you look at Kenya and the advances made in technology, it, many people now call it the Silicon Valley of Africa. Ten years ago, you would have bet against Kenya. In fact, everyone thought South Africa would be the next big thing in technology. Unfortunately, South Africa got many things and then it got political leaders. And nothing withstands bad political leadership. And so Kenya is way ahead things might change again because there are things happening in Cote d'Ivoire that I think are quite interesting in terms of technology, particularly technology in, in uh, energy and that kind of thing. Don't underestimate the ingenuity in Africa. You do it at your peril. Rather, support it, capitalize on it, and, uh, and form partnerships that way. I hope that helps to answer you. Going to take uh, an online question. Uh, here it is. China uses massive subsidies for their business everywhere. How specifically can that be supported via the U.S. government uh, and its support to the U.S. business? There must be an entrance to that market that's profitable, or it will not happen. That's why the U.S. business environment is healthy. This theory is not productive to business. I think that the questioner is asking. How can U.S. companies compete when Chinese companies get massive subsidies from the Chinese government? Anyone like to take a crack? Well, Do you want to go first? But, but, but that's the question everywhere, not only in Africa. Yeah, and honestly, if you look at what the world is doing even, you were talking about electric cars, you know, to stimulate demand for electric cars, what you do. People are offering some subsidy. We're buying your cars at a higher price, or you're getting uh, a discount on electric cars. So the role of governments also, at some point, is to provide incentives for a sector that the nascent stage until they are becoming profitable. And more and more, you're talking, and when investors are looking, they're, they're talking about blended finance. What is blended finance? It's the ability, I think, to use and directly uh, some long-term concessional resources and to blend this so that a private sector project could, could, uh, um, could be implemented. I personally experienced one in Cote d'Ivoire where we had a, um, a biomass project that was financed part with the private sector, was financed with concessional resources and uh, long-term uh, private sector resources. Both together made it this, this project possible. And as a result, Cote d'Ivoire would have, I think today, is the largest biomass project, uh, electricity project in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's possible. As I long as by the times you're looking over time, this level of subsidy uh, uh, is being reduced, and then that the company can work on, on market, uh, market regular, regular market rules. I, I have to admit a bias. I don't like subsidy. Subsidies and taxes, they never go away, <laughs> even if you reduce them somewhat. 
And I'll give an example of the effect of subsidies. The European Union subsidizes farmers. As a result, you have chicken flowing into Africa. They dump it. Why? Because they've already made their money on their breast meat, but chickens are stubborn, so they grow legs and thighs, <laughs> and they don't know what to do with them. They dump it in Africa, and they destroy African poultry. It's against the WTO rules, but somehow the European Union gets away with it. What happens as a result? If you look at Ghana, Ghana used to supply 95% of its own chicken. After they opened the market based on EPA, that's the European Partnership Agreement, where they were forced to open the market for poultry from Europe, and may I add the US, dumping started destroying local industry. Today, Ghana supplies 5% of its own chicken. Uh, the EU and the US, I think, is providing aid to help resuscitate the, the industry they've destroyed with taxpayers' money. Uh, and in addition, if you look at what happened to prices, because the answer is normally, well, we'll subsidize, maybe subsidized, but it's cheap. Ghana, uh, in Ghana, a study was done by USAID about poultry prices, and in 2017, after the local poultry industry has been destroyed by dumping, chicken in Ghana was more expensive than steak in South Africa. That's the effect of subsidies. And uh, I, I won't apologize for being against subsidies. <laughs> Why don't we have one more question, then we'll let our two panelists summarize sum up. Uh, over here, please, if you could state your name, your affiliation, and your brief question. Hi. Um, good afternoon, Now, My name is Amal Torres, and I am prior DOD, but currently run a commercial diplomacy firm introducing American businesses to African markets. Um, I'm ethnically of Somali descent, so thank you so much for bringing Africa back on the map. That is a discussion that is long overdue. My question is, um, with China being very, very active economically in Africa, can we surmise that China is actually productive, or are we confusing or conflating their activity for productivity? I didn't get it. Can you repeat the question? Sorry. Yeah. Can. Are so China is very, very busy and active all over Africa. Does that activity actually lead to productivity? Are they actually being economically successful in Africa? Yeah, are they just active or are they also economically successful? You want to start or you want to? Okay. We'll, we'll so, play that. So, so China, as I've mentioned, that China has moved its strategy from just being uh, uh, into designing construction and now in operating it. And honestly, I've seen it in the 2018 day. I was present in the uh, uh, China-Africa summit in, in, uh, in Beijing, and looking, we started to talk to even China Exim Bank at that time. They were really much more looking into where they were making investment as the capacity of the project in which they were investing to be able to repay them. So they were moving to something where they were looking at the ability of the company they were financing to support the debt they were taking on their balance sheet. So it was, it's clearly a shift. I think they've, they've learned from the lessons uh, of some of the investment where they, they, uh, they, they didn't make it correctly. And don't, you know, if you start to look at the way China is structuring its, its uh, financing, they're, they're, they're very keen and they're making clear that repayment to them is something critical. And therefore, there you know we should no one should underestimate the way these transactions are structured. It might not please everybody. Some people might have a different view on this, but they're 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 structured in a way which now, which means that they're more <coughs> and more looking you know in in project where, indeed, you know the financial return is there. They're making key investment now, whether it's in the oil and <coughs> gas, whether it's in the telecom uh, sector. And you're, I'm going, I think in the years to come, more and more they will do this in the agribusiness sector also from what I, what I can see. But I think that they are, they are in for that. Um, and like everybody else, they are looking <coughs> at, at return for them and they are looking at what benefit them. My, my view again on this is now Africa needs to make sure that it gets a, a big share 
of the benefits into these projects so that it benefits its own country. It looks as though China is acting very strategically. So it invests in minerals, in and they lend money to countries where those minerals are in abundance. And when those countries try to default, China is not up for the game. Take Zambia as an example. It's holding up the entire restructuring of Zambia's debt at the moment. Uh, Zambia also happens to be a, a major cobalt producer, copper producer. So I think China is being strategically successful. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I want to give you a couple of minutes to summarize. If there's something that you wanted to have said but you didn't, if there's some message you want to have your audience remain with, uh, here's a couple of minutes each. Let's start with Thierry. Thank you. So uh, let me start by giving an example. So we talk about what things that we can do or cannot do. And uh, this is an anecdote. That when I was at IFC, and I would, I would not name the country, so one of my team, IFC is the International, International Finance, Finance Corporation, Corporation which sorry. is tied to the World Bank. So when I was at, uh, at the International Finance Corporation, my team came with a project, and they were frustrated because um, they were doing this mining transaction. And they were frustrated because after a week, uh, the uh, the civil servant were not working in the administrations, have not been able to respond to questions or query on the loan documentation or investment documentation they've sent. And when I look at this, it was a binder of this size. You know? So I asked them, you know, do you think that you could give this to our CEO and tell him to come back to you within a week? There's no capacity in a lot of you know, African government's administration even to deal with these kinds of investments. And one of the things that one day I discussed with Donald Kabaruka at that time, it was the ability, I think, for institutions like the African Development to provide resources so that countries that don't have the capacity can hire legal firms in order to do this. I, I was as glad to have said that. I arrived at the Minister of Energy in Cote d'Ivoire, and I used that facility that the African Development Bank has. And I was able to tap into this money to actually hire a US law firm uh, to defend Cote d'Ivoire when it was renegotiating a, a project. Why am I saying this? Because we discussed this again. The best way, I think, to make sure that there's a long-term investment profitable for the continent and for the rest of the world and investors is to make sure that the way these transactions are structured, it is done in a way that provides benefits to everybody. It has to be win-win. A transaction is too imbalanced it will never work in the long term, OK? So this is one of the things where, again, you know, when you talk about rule of law and you're going about law firms, I mean, most people talk about the US. This is where you have a hedge and a technical advantage that a lot of other countries do not. And let me conclude by this thing. I certainly, I am biased, for sure. But I do believe that Africa is the continent of the future. If it's not by say, it's just by the numbers. And when you know the numbers, you look at the demographic, this is there. This is where the consumption is, going, is coming. Why? Because the youngest population is going to be there. And because at some point, it's going to be the largest continent in terms of population. Just this number shows that there's going to be consumption. Growth will be there. So the question I'm asking to all of you is, when do you want to be a partner in Africa? Is it today to make sure that you strategically invest for the future? Or is it when you realize that, hey, everybody is there, we should go there? The first one would be the one that makes benefit, profit, and would have a long-term presence in Africa. The second one would pay a hard price to have looked at the others with a first move advantage. Thank you. Thank you, Thierry. Francois? Great points, Thierry. I would start with the lawyers, too. But remember, the best lawyer in the world has to go up against the judge who has to be the best judge in the world. And if you're talking, if you're talking uh, criminal matters, you need the best police in the world to investigate, and you need the best prosecutors to prosecute. My view is, if you want to encourage rule of law, the US should invest in all of those. That's my first point. Make all of that a focus. It will not only benefit the US, it will benefit Africa, and then benefit everyone else trying to do business there. 
Secondly, America is transaction-driven. Americans need to learn to be relationship-driven. Without relationships in Africa, you don't get anywhere. I once took, <laughs> I once took a Canadian client with me to a meeting in Burkina Faso. And, and the person we were seeing started by laying out his family tree. <laughs> and about two hours later, we got to the subject at hand. The Canadian found it very difficult to do the same. So he started laying out his company structure. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> but develop relationships in Africa. Then you do business in Africa. Thanks, Diana. Thank you uh, to everyone. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank all of you for listening. Thanks to our online audience. And let's all give our two panelists a big hand.